Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. Good evening. You join us straight after we've just spoken to our four Conservative guests discussing the fate of the Welsh Conservatives in next year's Senate elections. I'm, I'm Matt Hexter and I'm joined here tonight with Kerry Davis and Richard Martin. Hello, guys. Evening, Matt. Hello. Uh, what did you make of the, uh, the interview tonight, Kerry? I thought it was really good. I, I was really impressed by the panel. It was nice to have some more, some less well-known voices, perhaps, in the Conservative Party. But you had David Meldin leading from the front. I thought we had a lot of honesty from Emma, Amanda and James. Really interesting take on some of the big ticket items which uh, you put to them. I think it's quite striking to get four Conservative representatives on a podcast from Wales and they are all pro-devolution I think that's quite a big thing. I think we've come a long way as a, as a nation in the last 21 years, but the Conservative Party seems to have come even further. I thought it was really quite interesting just to see four Conservatives, self-identified Welsh Conservatives, and we didn't ask them the question, which is the question that I suppose Adrian Masters gets to ask once or twice a year, is who is the leader of the Conservative Party in Wales, would have been interesting to see what they all said to that but but we can infer that they would have all said Paul Davis because they genuinely are Welsh conservatives and they seem to view their conservatism and their unionism through a Welsh prism and I thought that was actually quite striking. It's, it's quite interesting isn't it because in the bubbles that we are we operate in you, you you do get the feeling that the Welsh conservatives have become much more anti-devolution in their outlook. David Melding you know famously is is the conservative who was in Wales who was most passionately advocated for a brand of Welsh conservatism a pro-devolution outlook to their to their message uh, and to be honest going into tonight I didn't think that was really the case I thought Melding was uh, an exception rather than the rule uh, but I, but from the tonight's panelists you'd, you'd never think that do you think that is an accurate picture of the Welsh conservative membership or do you think we've just found panelists who are by the looks of it, I want to stand to be members of the Senate who don't want to don't want to abolish something they may be sitting in or have sat in. And also, if I may quickly just say, also didn't seem to think of the Senate as a stepping stone to Westminster, no. which is what you used to see it very much as. The Conservatives I speak to, and I know one of our, our panellists, I think that it is, it, it is representative of where we are. The, the party has got issues about um, where they stand towards devolution. We're influenced by some of the, the louder voices, the bigger players on social media who dictate the discourse. But as we're trying to do on this pod and have a few more of the, the voices you don't get to see, I think it was quite clear from those voices, the way they see devolution is very much along those kind of the Nick Bourne model and how he positioned the Conservative Party in that first decade. And I think that legacy is still there. If we roll forward to Senate 2021 elections, that Devo sceptic flank is very much open to competition from other parties, though. Uh, and Paul Davis continues to try and navigate that fine line. But if you're uh, scrapped, what's it called, abolished the Welsh Assembly or... Uh, what's left of UKIP or what's left of the Brexit party or whatever the heck Gareth Bennett is today, you think, oh, there's an opportunity there. If I can basically come around the right-hand side of the Conservative Party with a hard diva-sceptic message, you can see why they've got, they think they might have votes there. Well, that's what I thought they were doing. I thought they were, they were never going to openly call for the abolition of the Senate. 
but I thought they were sort of nod, nod, wink, wink at don't worry, this won't go any further to the members and to the part of the Welsh electorate that are devo-sceptic or, you know, openly for the abolition of the Senate. And I thought that's what they were doing. I thought that's, that's the ground they were willing to, to take in order to get power. And it seemed to be working that way in their polling rating. They, they basically got rid of the Brexit party in Wales and UKIP and abolish her on, what, 3 4%. I thought that's what they were doing, but maybe not from the elected members. They, they touched on it. I think both James and Amanda touched on where they see local conservatism going, about delivering locally, um, about how I think Amanda referred to bringing decisions back to Powys. James mentioned those kind of very regular political decisions, the 10 yards from your front door, where they can make a difference. And I think they, they're beginning to see particularly as local councillors uh, in a rural constituency, where devolution can bring those benefits. And it was very clear, I think it was Emma who said, but she, you know, she was very open, wasn't she? She said she, was, she didn't vote for it, and for a long period of devolution, she didn't support it. But she's come around to the opinion that it wasn't the Assembly and devolution that was at fault and needed to be rid of. It was the Welsh Government. It was that, they, I think... I'm not sure if they were briefed, but that all of them talked about having the same party in power for 20 years and change is needed. They keep saying that we're just a pragmatic party. We accept the reality as it is and we want to campaign on the best of it. And maybe maybe they've just accepted collectively, or at least you know, the, the, the leadership team within the Welsh Conservatives have accepted that this is the new structure. We just want to do the best with it that we see fit um and you know that's a that's an interesting possibility i know i think it's quite interesting we also heard quite a lot of praise in some regards for the current welsh government and actually the performance of the welsh government that was quite interesting i thought quite magnanimous I mean, you wouldn't expect anything less from david melding what did you think matt i mean you know you come from a background where the conservatives are the old enemy um i, I i'm fascinated to see what you thought of that because i thought i shared as abrasive I sh- as i thought I share James's uh, experience of Liberal Democrats as well, having been a kind of central uh, member for quite some time. But yeah, historically, we are, you know, at loggerheads with the Conservatives. We, I think the constructive approach is one that's been seen on, on both sides of the seven. Labour with the UK government wanting to work constructively and, and holding them to account where they need to. The same in Wales with the Conservatives here. This is, I think, a, a bit of a stark contrast to, to Clyde's form of opposition in the Senate, which is a bit more, you know, full on. I mean, they did sidestep the question I asked them with regards to the polling and how people view the Welsh Welsh government response vis-a-vis the UK government response. It's crazy that how much more popular the Welsh government response is than the UK government response across pretty much all demographics, even with conservative voters. It's difficult in the, you know, with the time we had to really get into whether they think that the Dominic Cummings incident and the covid incident will really have a long-term effect on their polling whether this is just the tip of the iceberg and the downward you know the downward trajectory of it or, or what but they're certainly they're certainly not heading in the right direction they're not going to outwardly criticize boris but i was quite taken aback by amanda being quite happy to sort of not criticize but when asked about daniel kaczynski very quickly went to the letter that craig williams the Montgomeryshire mp wrote to him there was a definite willingness to put up a wall there and say, not literally on the border, but put up a wall there to say, no, he's, he's not involved in this. This is 
our business, not not his. It was it was a bit of a slate curtain went up. <laughs> Polls have been up and down, and support was at a you know huge huge jump in conservative support at the end of last year around the general election. Um, David Melding, you know, says that there's no if it happens once, it can happen again. Uh, it's not drawing parallels with the conservative results in Wales in 2019 with 1983. Despite the recent downturn, they all sort of exude a degree of confidence. You know, they're not quite as ebullient as the uh, Labour MPs that we had on the first episode who were chomping at the bit to get 31 seats in the Senate. They're a bit more realistic than that. But yeah, they're, they're certainly... As the wind is certainly in their sails. Yeah, it was quite interesting hearing David Melding you know, say how realistically for the first time there is a chance the Welsh Conservatives will be the largest party, which I could never envisage in the, you know, before last year. I, I could never envisage that happening. I, I can't see um, them being the largest party, but I don't see why they'd be abashed at the moment. The latest opinion poll, uh, which aired last week, had them with a big drop. 11 points down but that was on the back of a a really big previous opinion poll and these things you know i never take one one at a time you've got to have at least three in a row but if you take where they are they're still i think they're still predicted at the moment to be up six seats that's really putting them in in the same kind of size of party as labor labor would still be there but clearly the second party in wales now overplied why wouldn't they be slightly bullish at the moment? We, we're a year out. I think we've said on this podcast, guests have said, you know, it's too early to say. But where, we're, where they are at the moment, on the back of the general election, the polls, even if they're down at the moment, they're in a pretty pretty healthy position. They've they got a right to talk to us in a kind of happy, bullish approach. You raised an interesting point, though, Matt, when you were speaking to them, you were talking about where can they win, and you were talking about where their strengths and weaknesses are. Their traditional rural base in Wales, on the, you know, on the English rural Wales or British rural Wales, leans Conservative. Welsh rural Wales leans Plaid. Um, obviously, these days, the Liberal Democrats are, are neither a massive party in, in either category. But where can they win? You, you were kind of laser-focusing in on the North, and the northeast in particular, I think there is a genuine question about whether those gains that they made in the UK general election will be carried forward to the Senate election, even if, you know, we accept for the fact that we are, you know, a, an economic crisis and a health crisis away from that election. Can you see them making that same kind of ground in places like Unismorn, in uh, which is obviously applied seat at the moment, or Wrexham, Allen, and Deeside? I mean. Can you imagine a conservative um, member of the Senate ousting Jack Sargent? I mean, I, I don't think they can take Ernest Morton. We, we try and take Ernest Morton in the Assembly, and it's never particularly fruitful. Brexit, is the, it was a major issue in December. It was a major issue in Ernest Morton and across the whole of the North Coast, down in Bridgend, everywhere. Everywhere in Wales, it was a big issue, one way or the other. Labour, again, like I said, voted for Corbyn twice but it was a big issue on the door even in the devolved elections in 2016 to a lesser extent but he was mentioned on the door in 2016 now that Labour don't have Brexit and Corbyn as issues anymore whatever you think of the current policy platform and the current, the current leader it's not it's no, those issues are no longer a problem for, for Labour the trust issues that are consequential of them may be still there but the hot topic issue of Jeremy Corbyn and, and 
whether we leave the EU or not, isn't there anymore. So maybe, maybe not. Maybe they don't have the same success in, in Senate 21. But in the 2016 election, they came very close to winning some of those seats. It was touch and go in the Cloyd seats and the Wrexham seats. Mm. You know, you, you can't say for certain that once people have been willing to vote Conservative the first time, they won't do it again. I think, I think that was an interesting uh, section. David went on from his experience of the, the policy position for the party and the polling that used to happen where large numbers polled said they would not vote Conservative under any circumstances. And his experience is that now those kind of similar kind of polls now have changed dramatically. And in Wales, you've got a lot of people who will consider that. And I think that is a, a big political generational shift. Old enmities and old alliances seem to be, between voters and parties, just seem to be crumbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. Um, it's no secret that I work in, in Newport West, and in the general, in December, we'd had lifelong Labour voters voting Tory for the first time. And that wasn't, you know, that was for a mixture of reasons. Granted, Brexit meant that we were getting remain Tories voting Labour for the first time. There was a big tidal shift in voting behaviour and, and old allegiances. So who knows? And like, I don't want to quote Hooper, but he's going to get quoted. But like he said last week, maybe it's just too soon to really say how people will want to vote, what their response will be by May next year. There's a, there's a lot of things that can happen and we, we can only discuss about where we are now. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, there are really interesting points about what I'd say is, is a new kind of approach to conservatism. Emma, you know, she details Sarah Atherton in uh, Wrexham and the qualities a new kind of candidate can bring to the Conservative Party. And I think we saw some of those tonight in some of the, the guests we had. I thought they did bring new things and they are that clear, different candidate to what the media the uk media portray the conservative as as that small selected white middle class privately educated but if you get the right candidate you know the people we we speak to that they have got a chance and one of the things in the polling which always gets me and it's always like the conservatives generally come second in merthyr tidville and you know they're not i can't see them winning merthyr but that's the kind of area where Plaid need to make inroads yet the second party in that kind of typical industrial welsh seat is the conservatives this is going to sound pretty much like a rerun of last week's episode with Plaid cymru but we're going to have to talk about this coalition stuff because uh, oh oh yes we yeah. are yes we are oh yes we are okay david was talking about how mr davis is much more oh sorry, the new Mr. Davis, as opposed to RT, is, is much more like Nick Bourne, who was famously involved in the formation of a coalition agreement in 2007 that never happened. What did you make of um, Mr. Melding's talking about coalition agreements, Rich? I was shocked with the relative enthusiasm or lack of opposition that all of the guests showed to doing a deal with Ply Cymru. I can barely formulate the words to describe their relaxed... Oh, oh no, I can quote Mandelson. They were supremely relaxed about the idea. Uh, And, you know, it is the case, even as Emma mentioned, that there are people in the Conservative Party that stretch from hard diva sceptic to Welsh independence within the Conservative Party. 
Um, in fact, the, the most recent Welsh political barometer showed, I think, was it 10%? And it's probably a really small number of actual respondents in that category. But I know for a fact from having spoken to a number of people that there are people who believe in Welsh independence and are members and voters of the Conservative Party. But the, just the, the sheer relaxation that they all displayed when talking about the idea of doing a, a formal coalition deal with Plaid Cymru, I just think that's that's quite extraordinary and maybe maybe that's genuinely how how they feel as a party about it i'm also kind of minded to echo the comments that i made last week when when i was talking about it the fact that the conservative party is a uk-wide party with a long history it could suck up and absorb the potential reputational damage of doing a deal with ply cymru for one term to get the labor party out of government and you know, the Conservative Party is going to continue to roll on uh, and it will be there the next election. I, I, I still, this is my, I, I, I will eat a hat or shoe or any other article of clothing if there is a formal coalition between Plaid Cymru and uh, the Conservative parties. I genuinely don't believe it will happen in any way, shape or form. But they certainly seem to think it's a possibility. And I think it, conversely, I think it would do massive damage to Plaid Cymru and it would probably split the party and cause huge damage. But... You know, I like I say, I, I will I will treat my shoes kindly over the next year, um, and hopefully they'll look reasonably tasty come May May the fifth or whatever it is next year. Um, but the key to that, and I I genuinely don't believe that the UK government under this Conservative administration will offer anything to Ply Cymru that Ply Cymru would demand. And David Melding referred to this. He said, "Well, what would be the one big thing?" I mean, uh, you you could consider it to be, you know, what what is yet to be devolved? What would complete the devolution settlement? It is devolution of justice, creation of the Welsh legal jurisdiction. And, you know, even people within uh, the Labour Party don't want that to happen. Yeah, you know, so so what chance is there that, you know, David T.C. Davis in the Welsh office, I mean, Simon Hart, maybe, I don't know. But, you know, the, the, the UK government is not going to let that happen. It's just, it just, there is nothing big enough that the UK government would give that Plaid Cymru would ask. And, and it would have to be something massive to even make people in Plaid Cymru think about it. I just can't see that is an equation that does not, does not add up. I think in the Conservative mindset, though, power and the scalp of taking Wales from Labour would be enough to make Conservatives think about devolving something like justice just to to get that to get the Labour Party out of power and just to have power and for Boris Johnson to be able to say look what we've done we've beaten Labour in Wales I, I, that's that's to me that I know we've talked about this a number of times and we've talked about whether how likely it is Plaid would agree but I certainly think that the Conservatives would be willing to put something sizable on the table just to just to get that scalp I, how much does Wales matter to Tory HQ in London? I'm not sure. It, I, I'm not sure it matters as much as we think it might. No, I don't think it does at all. I think the only thing Plaid would want from such a coalition, and we've got to remember the Conservatives are quite. They have got experience at coalitions now. They, the Lib Dem coalition from 2010 didn't do them any harm at all, and uh, you know I wouldn't didn't see that coming before that election either, but. The Conservatives are in a position where the only thing that Plaid will probably ask for is some kind of referendum on independence. I'd see that would be a 
deal breaker for the Conservatives. They're not going to do that. Anything else, I think they'd be happy to to go along with. But they all all of our panelists tonight were talking around Conservative and unionism. And as I said, in every kind of analysis of the last couple of pods, next year's elections are going to be dominated, I think, by Scottish independence. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I I don't know to what extent next year in Wales will be a discussion about independence. I don't think it will. I think it'd be a discussion about how good the governance of Wales has been for the past 20-odd years. I think Clyde want to make it about independence, like we talked about last week. It'll be you know front and centre of their campaign, but... I just don't know whether that will get much cut through. No, I'm not sure it'll get a cut through, but I think that'll be, if there's any kind of talk of coalition we're, or supportive arrangements, that's what Clyde would be asking for in that kind of discussions that they'd like. I see you grimacing there, Rich. Do you, do you no, no, I'm just that might be a request? I, ju- I just don't think that's enough. As having a referendum, there are people among, you know, all all independence campaign groups that say, you know, we, if we had an independence referendum, then it would be just like Scotland in 2014. It would be, it would change the whole dynamic in Wales and it might, but there's no guarantee of that. And, and, you know, if, if there hadn't referendum, if as Roger's um, recent polls would suggest over half the population, you know, don't even need to be persuaded. That's just what they would tick before the campaign and all the floating voters joined them and it's a massive thumping defeat. Then what have you got then? You've got, a, you've got, um, the Conservative Party has uh, managed to wipe out um, Ply Cymru because Ply Cymru's support would split. It's managed to boot out the Labour Party in the Senedd. And, Ply, you know, Plyde would be, they would essentially be doing a clegg but with the full knowledge that they're about to do a clegg, I just don't see. I just don't see that happening. Yeah, don't don't get me wrong. I don't think that would be the only thing they'd walk into the room to discuss with just one point on the list. I, I think there'll be a, a range of things, but I think that would be the deal breaker for the Conservatives because I think if Plaid aren't looking to have that kind of referendum in the next five years after next year's election, I don't know where where if it, if not now when. That question again. Um, It was really interesting (laughs) to see David Melding describing Mark Drakeford as a good unionist, though, because he's come in for an awful lot of flack recently from the unionist quarters for for being, you know, having, what did he say? He said um, he has no no emotional attachment to the union. That was was really interesting. Really interesting to see. Yeah, Mark Drakeford sees the United Kingdom as a mechanism for economic and social redistribution. Yeah. He does, I don't think he sees it in any sort of, yeah, as you said, uh, sympathetic or emotional connection at all. Yeah, there, are, well, there are some in the Labour Party who have that connection, but it's not a, for me, it's not a common feeling, especially amongst younger Labour members. I'd be very brave to describe myself amongst, as, as a younger Labour member anymore, but it's, it's, it's definitely not a, a majority view. Uh, it's the Conservative Party that are the quote-unquote unionist party. Can I, can I just float something else as well? The, David Melding said that he, they'd be happy to work with anyone in a coalition. Um, you know, we can assume that he wasn't talking about the Labour Party in that instance. And despite James's enmity, evident enmity for the Liberal Democrats in POIS, is there a chance, say, for example, the, you know, there, is, there are a few Liberal Democrats returned um, uh, next year, and 
the Conservatives the largest party. You know, you could potentially see, you know, if they offered Kirsty Williams the education brief, you know, continue your good work, you know, as in fact Amanda said, you know, she said that they don't have any policy problem with the, the new education curriculum in Wales. They just think maybe the delivery timetable needs, you know, slowing down a little bit. You know, maybe maybe you could see that. And, you know, there's a, certainly a lot of crossover there between the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. You know, I'm sure we'll get into this more next week when we interview some Liberal Democrats, but I don't know how many Liberal Democrats we can reasonably expect to be in the next Senate. You know, they're not doing particularly well on the list. I don't think they're, they're set to pick up any list seats. Some polling will have you believe they might win Cardiff Central, but I, I can't see that happening in a, in a million years because, you know, speaking as a former Cardiff Central boy, all the all Liberal Democrat voters in Cardiff Central who were Tories who voted Lib Dems to, to try and stop Labour winning. And since Brexit, those Conservative Tories, you know, those Brexiteers aren't, aren't going to vote Lib Dem anymore. So they're not going to win that seat. So they'll, they'll end up with one again. And I, I can't see, you know, touch wood, I can't see a scenario in which the Conservatives end up on 29 or 30 MSs. It's about vote share. I think Emma was, Emma was, Emma was realistic for, for next year in what, what would be success. It's about increasing that vote share. And I got a lot of time for that. You know, looking at the figures from the last blog, Labour 25 seats, Conservatives on 19, played on 15, Libs on 1. As, as things stand, the Conservatives are sitting pretty for next year. Yes, they might not form a government. There's an opportunity there. And it'll be, if people want change, Plaid can be the, the kingmakers, as it were. But as we all know, that is a very difficult, very difficult crown for Plaid to, to take and distribute. Do you, do you know, obviously, Richard, you've t- we've talked about this before, you know, the, the, the Plaid of the South Wales Valleys is a very different Plaid to the, to the North Northwest. Do, do you think there is a part of Plaid that want to be in power no matter what? I know we're slightly veering off the Conservatives now. No, <laughs> Plaid who want to be in power so, no matter what, who would be quite happy to jump into bed with the Conservatives. Can we have some kind of moratorium on jumping to bed? That's just... Sorry. That's a, that's a mental image that I do not need <laughs> at this time of night. I think uh, no, Emma, did, Emma did say she was about sleeping with the enemy. Oh, she did. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you know, anybody who's been watching Welsh politics long enough knows that there are parts of uh, Wales that are applied voting on the national question, but economically are you know, centre-right. And they vote Ply Cymru, Ply Cymru's internal coalition is as wide as any other parties. Um, but the leadership of Plaid at the moment, don't think you can describe, you know, despite the fact and this seems to be a recurring theme, despite the fact that the Rainbow Coalition was negotiated between David Malding and um, Adam implied, I think I just don't I just don't see it happening. I just I can't see and maybe that's because I live in Pontypridd. You know, you, you know, the, the influence of people like Leanne Wood these days, also Delith Jewell um, here in in the southeast, Lindsay Whistle, of course, you know just is it's incompatible in the in the you know in the december election the tories were, were quite a populist party they went in a very sort of populist direction lots of spending big commitments for infrastructure that's not traditionally been the welsh conservative style can you see them adopting a more populist economic investment driven 
campaign in Wales? I, think I can see it. I think there's going to be issues like the M4 in the southeast of Wales is going to be the topic for Conservative candidates in seats you will know well, Matt. Yep. So I can see that very much being there their kind of approach. I don't really see it as the populist approach in terms of the terminology we're used to and which we're um, used for last year's general election. Um, and I don't think it features so heavily in Wales simply because of what the powers and the, the funding and everything, it's slightly different. I think we can, I think if you look at it and we're getting a little bit, you've got the UM4 in South East Wales. I think it's not been mentioned again tonight, but Betsy in North Wales I think Paul Davis mentioned it this week, five years in special measures. Whichever way you look at it, that's not good. And if it's still there at next year's election, that's your North Wales policy area looked at. And I think you can find little things like that across their kind of key target seats. And above it all, they were consistent tonight. It's about 20 years without change. All four panellists spoke along those lines. And that's going to be a pretty easy camp campaign for a good strategist to build around. What about yourself? I, I agree. That's it. Don't have to no, say. It, don't it, expand. No, it's, it's, it's a. It's a very. It, it is. It's not a secret that the building of the M4 relief road in southeast Wales is a big issue. You know, even in the Newport West by-election and the general election in Newport West, all Matthew Evans talked about was building the M4 relief road even in an election that it played no significant, well, it played a significant part, even in an election that had he won, he wouldn't be able to do anything about it. It was in, it was in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, wasn't it? It was, and Boris, you know, once a week pretty much talks about building the M4 relief road. So I'm sure it will play a part in the, in the Conservative campaign material moving into next year. No, no, no doubt about it. But I, I think that's what they'll do. They'll talk about things like that. They'll talk about Betsy. They'll talk about wanting to create change, which is quite ironic, really, considering they themselves have been in government in Westminster for 10 years now. They can leverage the relationship with Westminster. You know, they can say, you know, a, a Welsh Conservative government in the Senedd would get favourable borrowing terms from a, well, a Conservative government in Westminster in the way that a Labour government wouldn't. And they can make all of those promises. I, I do, you know, I know you've said about Betsy um, a couple of times, Kerry. I'm not necessarily sure that the votes of discontent to do with Betsy would go to the Conservatives because the picture of health across the border in England isn't awesome either, certainly not in the north of England. And there's kind of like that ingrained cultural memory of the Conservatives and not the, the party of health and provision of health. And, and I, mean, I have to say, Matt Hancock has not done a spectacular job of you know, changing that. So I don't know who would be the benefit. I, I'm actually, I'm not sure. There is definitely an issue with Betsy, as there are with other health boards in Wales. I'm not necessarily sure that the votes would go straight to the Conservatives on the back of Betsy, but maybe I'm wrong on that. But certainly the M4. And, how, you know, how vulnerable, I mean, really, in the Senedd seats, Matt, are those South East Wales seats? Uh, you know, because, you know, we talked about, you know, Blaine Gwent doesn't have Nigel Kopner these days. You know, the, the Conservative Association in Newport West went through 
horrible contortions over 2017-2019. Are they still the operation that they once were? I mean, you'd imagine they would be looking at Brecon and Radnor. They would be looking, you know, they already hold most of Pembrokeshire in the southwest. Would they be looking at some seats in Swansea? Would they be looking? I, I just don't know. I, I think the, 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 new, the South Wales East seats, this again all goes back to what we're able to do in terms of campaigning. I think a good campaign in those South Wales East seats should see Labour retain those seats. I think they're all good candidates we've got there. They're, they're well-oiled machines in terms of elections. As you know, In Newport West, we've had quite a few uh, over the last few years, especially with the by-election we had last year. So I can see us holding them all. That's absolutely you know, I don't see that being an issue. It's just they will be, there's a clear attack line for a Conservative. That even in, like I said, even in elections where it's not relevant, they've brought up the road. Is it an incorrect assumption to think that the voters who voted for UKIP and for the Brexit Party will turn out in the same numbers for the Conservative Party? I don't know. And this is something that, uh, had we had a bit more time, I possibly would have asked, is I've been told previously that Conservative voters don't vote in devolved elections. Um, and I don't know to what extent that's true. I don't know. I don't think it is true. But it's certainly something that's been told to me in the past. They just don't turn up in the same number. Uh, so I don't know whether UK... Well, UK obviously did relative, very well in the last Senate election, but that's because it was a month or so before the referendum, with the conditions being different next year, I don't know if they'll vote in the same number. Brexit, it was a dead word tonight. They didn't want to talk about it. But if we don't leave come 31st of January, where does that leave us? Where's the economy post-COVID? That featured, you know, if the economy's where a lot of predictions say it's going to be, that's at the Conservative door. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of water to go under the bridge between now and the next year. I think we can talk about where we think policy pinch points will be but there's some big things which is just only going to emerge at the end of uh end of this year beginning of the next when they talked about policy in that interview it's sort of very broad brushstroke approach of yeah we want to talk about housing we want to talk about health is there a conservative way of innovating in those areas with the sort of devolved powers we've got well that's that's it, it was talk about, but we haven't really seen anything like that. And as Rich said, you know, what can they bring over from the the bigger governing body next door, which will impress in Wales? I mentioned Betsy, but health in England isn't really that rosy. Uh, the handling of COVID-19 is going to be a big thing. That hasn't gone well. Education, it's not gone well. You know, Amanda's a teacher, I believe. But if you if you look at some of the the policy approaches and the structure of education in England, it's not going to be welcomed in Wales generally. No, it just leaves the economy. And like I say, we don't know where that is. Pre-COVID, the economy, you know, you could have people who'd support it. Post-COVID, post-Brexit, we really don't know where it's going to be. And we didn't talk about uh, agriculture a huge amount there, although I think, I think Amanda brought it up. I mean, you have to also sort of suggest that although the Conservative Party might be unhappy with Leslie Griffith's uh, tenure as Rural Affairs Minister, in Westminster the Conservatives have just essentially green-lighted uh, an American trade deal where agriculture is on the table. That is not going to be a particularly welcome uh, message for rural constituencies in Wales 
at the you know when we leave the or if, if indeed we do leave the um, transition period with the EU in January next year you know that's has the potential to destroy huge swathes of the Welsh uh, agri uh, rural economy and I can see both the Labour Party and Plaid Cymru not letting voters in rural constituencies forget that. So I'm not sure whether so agriculture is a winner for the Conservatives either. Again, it depends to what extent Brexit is blamed for the economic fallout of the next couple of years or whether the Conservatives can be successful in pinning all the economic upheaval I'm thinking all of us expect to happen on, on COVID-19. Mm, yeah, I suppose yeah, I can see, yeah, is it a... Is uh, is COVID a disease to bury bad trade deals, so to speak? Um, mm. One thing that they very quickly all started agreeing on that I think is interesting, and I think it is a pertinent point, is the uh, outside of Cardiffness, um, the campaign to try and present certainly the Labour Party's stewardship of the Senedd as a Cardiff-centric thing. Now, I have to say it doesn't help that so many of the first ministers and so many of the cabinets come from Cardiff in the southeast. And I think the Conservative Party is right to see an electoral opportunity of trying to essentially make devolution work for the rest of Wales and to empower local authorities or regions. That is a that is a very salient point to campaign on it's the same thing probably Ply Cymru and the Liberal Democrats and possibly the Greens will all be campaigning on the same thing but with the weight of the Conservative um, campaigning machine they can probably do quite a good job of that and I think there's a challenge there for the Labour Party to be prepared for that and actually I don't know what the defence is I know we've seen um, Ken Skates try and um, present himself more clearly as the Minister for North Wales you know what about Mid Wales. I mean, I don't even know where is North Wales, where is Mid Wales. It would be helpful if we had some better geographical indications of what these, these regions are. But I think that is that is an op opportunity for the Conservative Party, as it is for the other parties, and they all seem to be quite consistent on that. And I think, again, you know, you, there are weaknesses, and you, you mentioned this, Matt. There are weaknesses in the Welsh Labour Party and Welsh Government uh, armour. Um, and if the circumstances were correct. For this to happen and there is these kind of political tailwinds from England, there is these kind of Brexity tailwinds, there are these kind of Covid related tailwinds and the internal dynamics of Wales are not favourable. You can see a scenario where the Conservatives may get close to the Labour number of members of the Senate. You, you can see the circumstances being there, but it does require all of these other things to kind of be working in the same direction. I think if we, if we were being realistic, I think we still have to see, you know, what, what was it uh, David said? Was it David that said 20 seats, 21 seats? I think that's probably realistic. I think it's probably, that would be a good night for the Welsh Conservatives. For the Conservatives, it would be a very good night, I think. Yeah. Being in a position where they could theoretically, I know you don't like the idea, but could theoretically form a coalition is, is a position of strength for them, definitely. Well, I look, for, I look forward to um, Lee Waters and uh, Mark Isherwood sitting down and hammering out that coalition deal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much to Kerry Davis and Richard Mine for another fascinating discussion. 
on the Conservatives' fortunes for next year's Senate elections. If you like what you heard today, uh, you can find out more on our blog on Medium at Hereith Blog Cymru, at Facebook at Hereith Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Hereith Blog. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.